Yes, Father God, we come afresh today to your word that we might drink once again of the well that will not run dry. We ask that by your spirit, as we come to your word, in your kindness, you might turn our hearts towards your son, Jesus Christ, that in him and in him alone, we might find refuge. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please do take a seat. And I wonder how you read the Psalms. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, then you'll know that we've been enjoying time in uh, the songbook of ancient Israel, as we have heard wonderful, beautiful encouragements from these age-old songs of God's people. Very often, I think, uh, we can approach the Psalms with the idea that, well, we'll keep reading until something catches our eye. Until some verse or or collection of verses stands out to us and and resonates in a special way. And then we'll focus on on that verse, maybe repeating it, maybe reminding ourselves through the week of, of some wonderfully reassuring truth, an encouraging promise, something comforting to meditate on and to revel in as we go about our day to day lives. And so many of the Psalms do have verses like that, don't they? You know the sort of verse that that might appear in front of a a beautiful mountain scene on an inspirational calendar. Or maybe if you're you're more up to date, the sort of verse that would make an excellent Instagram post. Do you know there are over one million posts on Instagram with the hashtag Psalms? And I don't want to knock that. It's a good thing for us to be encouraged by the heartwarming truths of Scripture. And that is a good thing for us to share on our social media. But the issue is that as you come to the Psalms a little more slowly, as you try to consider those wonderful verses in the context of the whole Psalm in which they're found, as you come to the Psalms to teach or to preach them, well, it soon becomes clear that things are not quite as straightforward as we might first have thought. Take our psalm today, for example, Psalm 91. It is full of encouragement, full of calendar-worthy verses. Verse 4, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. What a beautiful verse. What a tender picture of our faithful God gathering his people under his wings, drawing them close, shielding them, protecting them. Oh, that bears many hours of meditation, doesn't it? And verses 5 and 6, well, during the COVID pandemic, those verses sprung up all over the place. Social media was awash with them. What wonderfully comforting words in the middle of a global pandemic. And yet the problem is, as we go on to verses 7 and 8, well, what do they mean today? What are the implications of those words? If verses 5 and 6 apply to me during the pandemic, well then, 
who do verses 7 and 8 apply to? And add to that the promises of, of verse 10 to 13. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near you. You will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra, trample the great lion and the serpent. Is that really what those of us here who are Christians can expect from life? Is that really what we experience? You know, as I look around this room today, I know there are many here who daily feel the pain and distress of past harm. Many who, who know the present reality of struggle and distress. What are we supposed to do with these verses? How are we supposed to read this psalm? You see, the more we look at this psalm and, and really consider what it says, the more we have to ask the question, just who is this psalm addressed to? Who is it written for? Christopher Ashe says of, of this psalm, Psalm 91, that it is perhaps here more than anywhere that we must resist the temptation simply to appropriate all the nice bits of Scripture for ourselves, simply because we would like them to be true for us. The really big question the question upon which every blessing hangs is this. To whom are these promises given? We need to ask and, and answer this question honestly before we can decide how we should sing and respond to this psalm. And so as we consider that question today, my prayer is that we will come to a deeper, richer understanding of what this passage of Scripture has to say to us, of how these words speak into the reality of our lives today. And so with that question in mind, let's look again at our psalm. Verse 1. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Well, there's no ambiguity here in, in the way the psalmist speaks about God. Four different names are used for him in just these two verses, each confirming his identity, each making it clear that the one who makes these promises is the creator, the ruler, the covenant God of Israel, the only true and living God. But are these verses speaking about you and me? Do we dwell in the shelter of the Most High? Or do we more honestly pass through, fleetingly pausing in his presence? Is it, if we're honest, the Lord in whom we put our trust? Or actually, do we tend to find refuge in our possessions, in our wealth, in our comfort, in our health, our jobs, our families? Those are the things that I go to great lengths to protect, to shield from disaster. 
Those are the things that I've taken out insurance policies for. You see, halfway through this psalm, verse 9 is very clear. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling, if you do that, then these promises are for you. If you do. That's the condition. And friends, I'm not sure that I can honestly say that I do. At least not in any consistent or reliable way. And so maybe this psalm isn't that encouraging at all. Maybe it brings little real comfort. Maybe it's just wishful thinking. Well, maybe. If it is addressed to us. But what if it's not? What if, what if we're not supposed to read these promises and just assume that they were meant for me? You see, throughout the psalm, there are clues. Clues that maybe these words are meant for someone else. The language of shield and rampart, arrows and tents. This is for a leader, a military leader. Refuge and fortress. Well, well that sounds like something David might say. In fact, Talking of David, do you remember that song they sang when he became king? Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. It's not conclusive, but there's an echo of that, isn't there, in verse 7? A mighty warrior king. And then verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Well, that's the sort of thing God's chosen leader would do for his people. That's the language of, well, the language of Messiah. And if we're in any doubt, then God himself speaks of this individual in the very next verse. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see, throughout the Old Testament, we see God's special relationship with the leader of his people. You know, the kings of ancient Israel were known as God's sons, his chosen ones. They were known as Messiah. And yet none of them, not even David, not even Solomon, could claim perfect obedience, unswerving faithfulness. You know, it seems that these promises in Psalm 91 weren't even for them. At least not in an ultimate sense. Now, I think any ancient Israelite reading these words would have known they would have known that the echoes of, of Davidic language, well, they pointed forwards to great David's greater son. They would have known that, that these promises, this kind of relationship with Yahweh, these words were not just for the king. They were for the king. The 
chosen one, the Son of God. And you know, for us today, it's only when we begin to read this psalm in that light that things really begin to fall into place. If these words, if these promises are written for the king, the king above all kings, if they're written for Jesus Christ, well then, then we really have hope. For he is the only one who can truly make these claims. He is the only one who can say these things with integrity. He lived them out fully and truly. No one else could claim to dwell with the Father as Jesus of Nazareth did. No one else could claim to have made the Most High his dwelling place as Jesus of Nazareth did. There is no one of whom God could say, he loves me, he acknowledges my name, he calls on me more truly than he could Jesus of Nazareth. And so let me encourage us today to read this psalm, to read these promises, first and foremost, as for Jesus Christ. These verses speak primarily of his relationship with the Father, not ours. They speak primarily of the Father's love for him, not for us. And, you know, what we'll find as we, as we do that is that it opens up a richness and a beauty to this psalm that simply isn't there if we only ever try to apply these words to ourselves. Because, you see, Jesus is fully man and fully God. He is at once the, the perfect righteous king to whom these promises are made, and he is the loving, generous God who makes them to those who love him. In Matthew 23, Jesus says of himself that he has longed to gather the people of Jerusalem together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And friends, time and again we are told that Christ is our rock and our sure foundation. He is the one in whom we may find refuge the one in whom we may know security and safety. But most of all, let us see how Christ brings together the voices of this psalm in the language of dwelling. Yes, in his earthly life, Jesus of Nazareth dwelt with the Father in a more complete, more intimate way than anyone before or since. I am in the Father and the Father is in me, he tells us in John 14. But it is in his very incarnation that we also see a beautiful twist on the language of this psalm. The word became flesh, we're told, and made his dwelling among us. Now, in Jesus Christ, God has come to dwell with man. And in sending his spirit to his people, Jesus Christ now makes God's dwelling possible within each and every one of us who trusts in him. 
the Spirit in turn guaranteeing our inheritance that day when we shall fully know what it is to dwell in the shelter of the Most High for all eternity in the new creation. Friends, do you see? Once we grasp that this psalm is about Jesus, well, well then we need no longer feel defeated or, or deflated by our own inability to live as our loving God requires. Rather, we may rejoice that in Christ, all of God's promises find their yes and amen. These words penned many hundreds of years before his birth ought to lead us to marvel and to wonder at God incarnate, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully perfectly human. But I guess you might still be wondering, if Jesus is the one to whom these promises apply, if he is the one who loves the Lord and is loved by him, well then, what of the reality of suffering in his life? How come he did know suffering and struggle, harm and disaster? After all, he was betrayed, arrested, whipped and mocked, beaten and scorned. He was hung to die on a Roman cross. That's not what the psalm promised. Well, you know, that question has been raised of this psalm before. If verses 11 and 12 seem familiar to you, well, perhaps that's because we find them quoted in Matthew chapter 4. We find them quoted by the devil. Matthew 4, verse 5. The devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands. So that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Do you see what the devil wants Jesus to believe? That the words of this psalm give him the right to expect an earthly life that is free of suffering. A life where, where he can do as he pleases and expect God to step in and preserve his comfort. But that is not what Psalm 91 promises. And of course, Jesus knew that. Jesus answered the devil, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This psalm is not a magic wand. It's not a promise of life without suffering. But rather it is a promise that the Lord will be with us in suffering. And a promise that we may trust that he is working his purposes out through even the most painful and distressing circumstances of our lives. You know, it's notable in, in Matthew 4 that, that the devil didn't go on to quote verse 13 of our psalm. Because it is there that we find the climax of our Lord Jesus Christ's victory. A victory won precisely through suffering. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. 
you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Both the lion and the serpent are are biblical pictures of Satan. And it was at the cross as he endured terrible suffering that Jesus Christ won once for all the decisive victory against our greatest enemies, sin and death and the devil. And it was at his resurrection on the third day that we saw the beautiful fulfillment of these final verses of our psalm. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see, this psalm was was never a promise of an easy life. A walk in this world free from suffering and struggle. No, rather it was always something so much more. It is the promise of full and and final vindication. Of eternal honour and glory. Of true and lasting satisfaction. The harm of the cross did not overtake our Lord. Disaster did not come near his tent, at least not in any lasting way. And he did, by his triumph on the cross, trample the great lion and serpent. Our God keeps his promises. Hallelujah. But now see, here's the conclusion of the matter. And it is great good news. If the promises of this psalm are first and foremost for Jesus Christ, and if he has in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension known the fulfillment of these words, and if he has now, by his grace, through his spirit, joined every believer to himself, well then, well then it turns out that these promises are for you and me. If we are in Christ Jesus, then we may enjoy every spiritual blessing in him. Are you kidding? You might be thinking. All that. And at the end of it, it turns out that the Instagram posts and the inspirational calendars were right all along. But friends, don't you see Can't you grasp how much deeper, how much richer our appreciation of God's goodness to us is when we recognize that it comes through and only through our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ? And don't you see how that guards us from the folly of the prosperity gospel, from the very same lie that the devil peddled to Jesus? If we're so quick to claim these promises for ourselves, well, well, then we run the risk of expecting a life in this age that is free from suffering, that is comfortable and pleasant. But our God promises us no such thing. If, on the other hand, we first see 
that these promises are ours only through Jesus Christ. Well then, then we will see all the more how marvelous the Lord's work is. To work through suffering and trial and struggle and pain. To count us worthy of sharing with Christ in his sufferings. So that we might share also in his resurrection and glory. That brings a beautiful richness to our appreciation of this psalm. For as Christopher Ashe says, for to be in the shadow of the Almighty by being a man or woman in Christ does not insulate us from suffering, sickness, or even from violent death. It means something deeper than this as it did for the Lord Jesus. It means the assurance of bodily resurrection. The fulfillment of the promises of this psalm in the life of Jesus came after his suffering and death. In his bodily resurrection, we see him rescued from every attack and saved out of all suffering. This psalm never exempted Jesus from suffering as the tempter suggested, but it guarantees a final rescue from all trials. It is the same for us who suffer with our Lord, that we may be glorified with him. Oh, friends, I think that is a truth worthy of any Instagram post. And so let's revel in that truth now as I read our psalm again one more time. If you're a follower of Christ today, then, then let these words lead you to wonder, to worship as you consider him. And if you're not yet following him, well then hear what you're missing and come to him today. Let him be your refuge and fortress. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge. 
and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent because he loves me, says the Lord. I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation.